welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian. I'm your co-host for today. This is a weekday Bible answer program called A Reason for Hope. We're broadcasting live from our studio here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. It's a pleasure to be with you all. Um, do you have a question about the Bible, about how to apply certain scriptures to your life, or what is the meaning of such and such scripture, or uh, how does the Christian worldview apply to my life and compared to other world all kinds of questions that we deal with here on the program and so we really encourage you to uh, follow along ask a question if you have it uh, there's really nothing that uh, you can't ask as long as it's sincere from the heart and that you're genuine in what you want to learn uh, we live stream this program to multiple platforms that we'd encourage you to uh, check out uh, this is our Facebook page so you can go to facebook.com forward slash at CCF Tucson and you can watch this live stream and simply leave your question in the comment section I will be monitoring those throughout the program and be trying to tackle your questions as quickly as we can we also live stream to YouTube and if you happen to follow us on some of these social media platforms we'd really encourage you to like subscribe share uh, and of course on YouTube hit that notification bell so that you can uh, be notified whenever we have one of our programs going on. We also live stream all of our services, special events, even uh, memorials. Uh, so if you um, <clears throat> uh, want to keep in tune with what's going on here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, Arizona, uh, subscribe. Really appreciate it. Our YouTube channel handle is at Reason for Hope 546. Our senior pastor, Scott Richards, uh, follow him on Twitter if you'd like, and you can also uh, tweet your questions, and they can be handled at a future program, if not that day. Uh, Pastor Scott is posting uh, uh, the program, uh, I'm sorry, Wednesdays through Fridays, and uh, in studio with me today is Pastor Peter Martin, and he hosts the program on Mondays and Tuesdays, so if you want to get a little variety of opinions, then you know where the gang is. Uh, today, Pastor Sean is, is his day off, so Pastor Sean Richards won't be here today, but uh, feel free to chime in if you'd like. We also uh, <clears throat> live stream our uh, programs and services right to our website, so if you'd prefer not to be on a social media platform, if you're one of those folks who just goes, I don't want to be on the Facer webs or the interubes tubes, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, <laughs> you can just go to our website. That's calvarychristianfellowship.com and hit the watch live tab. And you can not only watch all our services, including this program, you can actually ask questions, dialogue with individuals, and make prayer requests. We also have an app, a little Bible app where you can follow along, leave notes, read through the scriptures right from your mobile device. Uh, you can keep track of events, watch sermons, uh, events, and so on, uh, all through our little app that you can download from the iTunes and uh, the Apple iTunes store and the Google Play store. We also live stream our services to all Amazon Fire products. So there's a channel there for our church as well as Roku. So if you are interested in following along uh, on our Roku and Amazon channels, you can do so. Now, if you'd like to ask a more sensitive question or you just prefer the old-fashioned email method, you can just email your questions to us. And that email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all spelled out, no numbers, at gmail.com. 
In studio with me today is Pastor Peter Martin. Hey, What's bro. up, man? How's it going? <laughs> it's going pretty good. Glad I, to be here. Hopefully everything's working. I When we started, I, I went to hit the record button, and my knuckle hit some other button. All of a sudden, the screen went black, and my heart went to panic. <laughs> <laughs> But Happens. I think uh, I think I I think I know what button I hit, and uh, Pastor Dave will have to show me. I, I think I undid it, so hopefully everything's going well. <laughs> if, you, if you're not seeing this and you're wondering where did they go for today, then you know it was my big fat knuckle that was the problem. But um, today we want to start off with the concept of uh, liberty. What does that mean? Uh, is that a biblical principle, or is that something that? Uh, Oh, Westerners talk about. Well, that's what we're going to be kind of discussing in the beginning of the program today before we take your questions. And before we do all that, let's take a moment to pray and ask the Lord to be with us, to guide us, to fill our words with his spirit. Peter, would you be so kind? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, Father, we love you. We praise you. We glorify you and we seek to honor you in this time. I do ask that uh, the words that we speak, the answers that we give uh, would be things that honor and glorify your word and your truth. Uh, I pray that all those listening would be blessed by this conversation, that it would encourage them in their walk with you and it make them more equipped to be able to defend their belief in you. And to uh, those who are listening who may not have a relationship with you yet, I pray that it would be beneficial for them and maybe helpful to bring them closer in alignment with who you are. Uh, we're grateful for you, God, in your name. Amen. 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 All right, yeah, so as Adrian said, uh, a lot of these shows, we like to start off with a topic or, you know, we've been going through some bad philosophers in the last couple hundred years. But for today, I thought it would be an interesting concept to talk about freedom or liberty and what it means and uh, how it's been taken throughout not only the church history, but also uh, modern day politics, I guess you could say. And um, so, so the concept of liberty is something that's throughout the Bible, you know, the, the main kind of book that the Old Testament circles around is the book of Exodus, right? Exodus means departure, and it is a book about liberty, right? It is a book about God setting free the captive nation of Israel from, from the totalitarian regime of the Egyptians. Um, throughout the book of Isaiah, there's many, many conversations about liberty. A lot of the prophets talk about setting the captives free, bringing liberty to those who are in bondage. Uh, then you get into the New Testament, and Jesus talks about leading people f to liberty. Uh, in fact, the holiday we just celebrated at the time of this recording is Easter. And there's a reason why Jesus was crucified on the Passover celebration, right? The Passover celebration is the commemoration of the liberation of the nation of Israel from Egypt. And Jesus, in John chapter 8, gives the reason as to why that was the day that he was crucified. He says, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And, but if you know me and you know the truth, then you will abide in my words, and my word, the truth will set you free. And whoever the Son sets free will be free indeed, right? So the, the concept of liberty, liberty not just from some regime that will oppress you and take away your liberty, but freedom from sin and death itself, right? That was the whole concept of Jesus. Now, all this talk of liberty, though, could lead a lot of people to the false conclusion that freedom is a complete ultimate good, right? And so let me explain that concept just for those listening. Uh, so in philosophy, there are three types of good that someone can pursue. There's utility goods, and there's two categories within that that I'll talk about in a second, and then there's ultimate good. So an ultimate good is something that is beneficial, right? It has a utility. It does something that's good for you, but it's also good 
in and of itself, right? Even if there was no utility, it would still be good. So for instance, a parent loving their child, that would be an ultimate good. So loving your child is fulfilling, it's very beautiful, it's very awesome, uh, it's encouraging, right? You're able to take care of your child. There's a lot of utility there to the parent-child relationship, but it's good even unto itself. That's why a parent's able to continue to be loving and giving towards their kid even when it's not working out, right? Even when their kid is rebelling and there's no visible utility that's happening at the moment, right? That's, that's what gets you through it because it's a good unto itself. Utility goods are broken up into two categories. There's pleasurable utility goods, and then there's like medicinal utility goods. So a pleasurable utility good is kind of like chewing bubble gum or eating cotton candy, right? It, the only good that's in it is that it gives you pleasure. Uh, you, you know it's not good for you at all, right? When I chew a stick of bubble gum, I'm like, I know what I'm doing. You know, it's not good for my teeth. It's not good for, you know, maybe if I'm chewing a trident, there's there's that. But if I'm chewing like a uh, you know, was a Bazooka Joe or something like that. I know, I know this is not good for me, but it's pleasurable, and that's why I do it. Um, the the other type of good is like a medicinal good, like taking an aspirin or something mm -hmm. like that. The only reason why I'm doing it is because it's benefiting my body, but I'm not doing it because it's pleasurable or it's ultimately good. If you were to take away that utility, it would cease to be good, right? If if the Tylenol no longer cured the headache, I wouldn't take it because there's nothing good in it of itself. So all that to say is how do you categorize liberty? Is it an ultimate good? Is it a good unto itself that you should pursue for its own end? Or is it simply something that's a utility good, right? Mm -hmm. It's only good because it provides a use. And if you were to remove the use, it's no longer good. So in our modern day culture, I think that most people would think that liberty is an ultimate good. It's something that is beneficial unto itself. I think about even a woman like Naomi Wolf who's a third wave feminist, and she argues pretty stringently for the right of abortion for women. And, you know, the, the entire argument for abortion is a, uh, a, an argument based upon liberty as an ultimate good, right? Who are you to restrain the liberty of someone else? Who are you to take away the bodily autonomy of someone else? And in her argument, she actually acknowledges that the unborn are alive, that they're living human beings. But she says, uh, we oftentimes, or I'm kind of paraphrasing her argument right now she says oftentimes we do send people to die for for liberty so she mentions like soldiers right we send soldiers to die to preserve the liberty of our country she says what's wrong with sending children to die to preserve the liberty of their parents right so uh which is a pretty ghastly argument but that's what she says she says we sometimes need to kill a child in its full humanity to preserve the life the the liberty of the mother Right, so that is an argument that liberty is an ultimate good, and so therefore, I should pursue it even if it is costly, right? Even if it disadvantages somebody else, liberty is such a fundamental good that no matter what, I should pursue it. And uh, you know, I, I don't think that anyone has really summarized or presented this argument better than John Milton in his really excellent book, Paradise Lost. So he has Satan communicating about this concept of liberty in one of the sections of his book, and in Paradise Lost, this is Satan speaking, and he says, Farewell, happy fields, where joy forever dwells. Hail, horrors. Hail, infernal world, and thou profoundest hell. Receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. What matter where if I still be the same, and what I should be, all but less than he whom thunder hath made greater? Here at least, 
we shall be free. Hence, it is better to reign secure, and in my choice, to reign is worthy ambition, even though it is in hell. Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. So what Satan is articulating here is that freedom, liberty is such an ultimate good that anyone that would restrict me of freedom, even if it's God himself, is doing something that's evil, and I have the right to rebel against him. And even if I have to sacrifice heaven in order to do it and embrace hell, it's better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. That's the idea. That's what the logical conclusion of liberty as an ultimate good would lead you to. It's better to rule in hell than it is to serve in heaven. Mm. And weirdly, a lot of people in the modern age have made similar arguments. Even if it makes the world a worse place, it's better to pursue my own bodily autonomy if it means I become more free. Right? If, if abortion kills kids, well, fine. It still provides me with bodily autonomy, so it's a good thing. Right? And it's not because there's <clears throat> some other good that's coming about. It's because the good is the end in and of itself. That's the right. fact that it's my liberty, and that is capital L, all caps, no matter what. If you violate that, then you're the bad one. You're the evil one. It That's doesn't right. matter the outworkings or the, the, the consequences of my liberty yeah. so long as it is my liberty. And I think that, that like what you just said is so important for people to hear. I think we don't understand that that's the principle that many people in our culture are working from. So we think that if I provide you with an adequate enough example or argument that shows you that what you're doing is harmful, it would convince you. But the truth is, is that it never will. And think about it from this perspective. We have ultimate goods as Christians that we pursue, and no logical argument is going to talk me out of it. So for instance, if you were to show me that the pursuit of truth right? Pursuing truth actually makes the world a more divisive place, right? That it would actually be better for civil discourse if everybody just believed in convenient lies in order to get along, right? I would still say, no, truth is worth pursuing because it's an ultimate good. It doesn't matter if it makes things a little bit more contentious on on the political battleground or in the civil battleground. It's a worthwhile pursuit, even if it makes things a little bit worse in order to do so, right? No one's going to convince me out of it. And on the pro-life side, again, there is no argument, even if you could show me, I don't, I don't believe it, but one uh, economist in the book Freakonomics, he makes the argument that the world has become a better place because of abortion, because many of the children who have been killed in the, uh, the abortion mills have been in low-income uh, neighborhoods, and low-income neighborhoods have a higher percentage of criminals. And so therefore, you could do, logically, the outcome is that less criminals have been born, right? And so he makes a really interesting argument that because criminals have been executed before they've had a chance to live, the world has become a safer place. Now, I reject that argument. I don't think it's true. Because he's coming from a place where all morality is utilitarian. Exactly. So even if, But even if I believed what he was saying, I would still say, yeah, no, I would rather live in a world with more crime, but those kids had the right to life, which I think is an ultimate good. Mm-hmm. Um, I would rather live in a world with more crime, but with people having a protected right to life. That's what I would say. Um, or if someone would say, well, the economy would be worse because how would we support all these children? Once again, I would much rather live in a far poorer country that guarantees the right to life than a country that doesn't guarantee the right to life, mm-hmm. but has a better economy, right? Because I believe it's an ultimate good. You're not gonna be able to talk me out of it with logical utilitarian arguments. And that's probably the fundamental flaw for those who argue for things like abortion on demand, right. is that they're 
basically competing the idea of liberty being the ultimate good and not the uh, value of human life. Right. And they're conflating the two. Right. <laughs> so and if they were to understand that even if they disagreed from the pro-life perspective, the value of human life is the ultimate good in right. this situation, not your liberty. Right. In fact, what's frustrating about, as a side note yeah. of, of that, is that the argument is that uh, you're taking away my liberty when laws are written on the books that prevent people from being able to, you know, on demand, kill their children. Right. And I always kind of get confused. I thought, well, wait a minute. Whose liberty was being taken away when you did whatever it took to cause the pregnancy in the first place? That's where you exercise your liberty. Mm. I was listening to an interview with Peter Kreft, mm. a brilliant yeah. uh, Christian philosopher, yeah. and he argued that the abortion debate has nothing to do with bodily autonomy. It has everything to do with sexual freedom. Mm. And I thought, I'd agree with that. Yeah. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, and and many of the people in the beginning of the abortion movement were making those arguments, right? Simone de Beauvoir, who's one of the main ones, she wrote the book The Second Sex. She literally said that. She said, if if women are going to be able to compete with men in the workforce, they have to have the right to abortion, because if not then the consequences of sex, because they have different outcomes for male versus females, then you will never have equal outcomes within the workforce. So that was her argument. Well, the late uh, SCOTUS, uh, uh, she made the same argument. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, she made, this, uh, made the exact same argument. There's Without abortion, there's inequality built yeah. into the system. And so again, if I'm functioning off the premise that liberty is an ultimate good, then all those arguments make sense. And I always go back to this. G.K. Chesterton made a really fascinating argument in his book, Orthodoxy. And he's a great Christian philosopher and thinker. Uh, also wrote crime novels, you know. But uh, in, in his book, Orthodoxy, he says what a madman is, a lot of people think that the crazy person is a stupid person. And he says, not necessarily. The crazy person might be a very intelligent person, but he's just functioning off of a false premise. Right? And so because of it, all the conclusions he's coming to logically are going to be crazy because his premise is not anchored in reality. And so again, so if they're right, right, if, if the, the modern liberal party, by the way, the word liberal literally means liberty, right? That's where we get the word from, right? It's about freedom, right? So the, the liberal movement, not the liberal party, it's the Democratic Party. But uh, if they're correct, then they're, they're right. Right, all their conclusions are correct if the fundamental premise is correct, that it is an ultimate good. Well, biblically, is that what we see? And the answer is no. There are many passages that talk about liberty as a utility good. In fact, uh, the Apostle Peter, he says, we have this liberty, but let not your liberty be a cloak for vice. What's he saying? Liberty's a good, but it could lead to vice, right? It could lead you to being less free, and then it becomes evil. So in other words, Liberty is only good if it allows you to do something that is an ultimate good. And what is it? Virtue, right? The reason why God created mankind with reason and rationality and freedom is because it enables mankind to be virtuous, right? If I hold a gun to your head and I say, hey, I want you to give all your money to charity, or I want you to be a good parent to your children, or I want you to be a loving husband to your wife, if you do those things under duress, you're not virtuous, right? No one would look at you and say, man, Adrian is so virtuous. Look at how he gave in to a gun being held to his head and did the right thing. You know, <laughs> you, you would you would say, no, that's not a good thing. You're you're doing the right thing, but you're doing it for the wrong motives. You're not wanting to do it. You're not free to do it. So you're saying that so my wife should stop holding right. a gun to my head? <laughs> <laughs> and evil is the same thing. 
right? If I hold a gun to your head and I tell you to, uh, or if I hold a gun to your family's head and I say, you either do this evil thing, you rob this bank or you do, otherwise I'm gonna kill your family, right? If you did it, if you did this evil thing, if you you know committed burglary or something like that, and then you stood before the court, that would actually be a good defense. You would say, hey, like I did this evil thing, but you got to understand I did it because the life of my family is being threatened. I wasn't free to make this decision. Mm -hmm. That would be a good defense. So what you see is that, again, liberty is a utility good. It provides for virtue, and that's what makes it a good thing. If it's not enabling virtue, though, it's no longer good. In fact, it's become an evil thing. So in other words, if you did something evil under duress, under compulsion, that's no longer evil. However, if you choose to do something evil and nobody's compelling you to do it, then it is truly malevolent, right? It's truly an evil act. That's what makes evil evil in a, in a, in a moral sense. Absolutely. Not so. just the, because if you, if you define morality and right and wrong and all in terms of its outcome, right, then it's not virtue for virtue's sake. Right. It's just, well, it seems to work out for everybody better this way. Right. <laughs> exactly. And so even in uh, like our founders, for instance, they did not argue for liberty for liberty's sake. They argued for liberty as a means to virtue, right? Mm. That was the whole point. Why were they so concerned with having limited government? Because they were concerned about the people developing a moral acumen, right? How could we have an ethical people if they were restrained by the government, mm. they were forced by the government into doing the right thing? Well, and they also had the underpinnings, the, the foundation of a Judeo-Christian worldview and ethic mm -hmm. that only a religious people, and I can't remember which... Jonathan Edwards. Said, okay, Jonathan... Uh, no, Jonathan, sorry, John Adams. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of Johns out there, yeah. <laughs> who, who said that unless you have uh, religion as the foundation, right. you cannot have a self-governed people. Right, he said, our constitution will only work for a religious and moral people. Yeah, so that was a quote from John Adams, our second mm -hmm. president. So yeah, the, the founders were very much in touch with that idea. The ideal of virtue is so good that liberty is a necessary right to encourage people to have. But again, it's not about rights. It's about orienting yourself to the right obligations yeah. to make you a virtuous person. It's not about doing what you want. So this is a quote from the Apostle Paul. I think he sums up this argument very well. This is Romans chapter 6, and Romans 6 is all about liberty. It's all about this concept of Christian liberty. Romans 6 verse 15 says this, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? So again, this is the argument that most people make about the law of liberty that is contained within the New Testament. If we don't have to do the right thing because Jesus has paid the price for our sin, then doesn't that mean I could do whatever I want? Doesn't that mean I could sin? And grace, well, should I sin more that grace may abound still more? And he says, certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slave to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though we were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading into more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. So again, what's the function of liberty? It's righteousness producing holiness. It's the ability, it's the premise, it's the foundation it's the way in which we can exercise virtue. That's the only thing that makes it good. If it's not providing for virtue, it's become an evil. And that's the, what Paul's arguing. In fact, 
He's actually arguing that if I misuse my liberty, I actually lose it in its entirety, hmm. right? So if I give into my appetites to a certain level, I lose liberty at the grand level. So the most obvious uh, example of this would be the addict, right? So if I look at the alcoholic or the heroin addict or the, um, let's say the, the, the cocaine addict or someone like that, are they free? Right? Would anyone call that lifestyle free? And people would say, well, well, no, they're not free. Now, if I were to counter and say, well, but they want the drug and they're getting it, so why would you tell me they're not free? And they would say, well, yeah, they're able to get this one thing that they want, but they're prevented from any of the other desires that they might have. Right? If they want to be clean and sober, they can't do it. They don't have the willpower to say no to the drug, so they can't. If they want a successful career, they're limited to do that because their addiction is so pervasive that they can't function in society, right? Well, and those com create chemical dependencies, but what about um, sinful habits that don't create those mm -hmm. bodily chemical dependencies? Has someone who has uh, succumbed to addictions to like pornography or uh, other kinds of sex addictions or other just bad <clears throat> sinful habits, yeah. <clears throat> are they no longer free? And that's what uh, this, this passage would help us understand, right? What is free? The person who's free is the person who's free to do the good, right? That's Paul's argument. So if you're no longer free to do the good, then you're not free. You're not liberated. You're doing what you want, but maybe you're not doing what you actually need to be doing. So uh, using your example, I think, I can't remember who said this, but he said, not all sin is addiction, but all sin is bondage. Right, so even if I'm talking about someone who says lying or giving into pride, conceit, greed, whatever, um, even if those aren't addictions, right, or they don't rise to the level of behavioral addiction, uh, which I don't have time to get into right now, the difference between chemical addictions versus behavioral addictions, but um, even if they don't rise to that level, it's still a form of bondage. Why is it a form of bondage? Because that sin, as I give into my appetites, I'm shrinking my will. And as my will shrinks at a commensurate rate, I am losing the ability to say no to this particular sin, even though I want to say no. So there are times in which I want to do the right thing. And this is Romans 7, right? Paul's talking about this type of loss of liberty. I want to do the right thing, but I don't have the will to do it. I want to evade the wrong, but I don't have the will to actually follow through with evading the wrong. That's someone whose liberty is being stolen by the sins that they're committing. But even if, right? So what if someone consents to something that's bad and they want to do it? So let's say someone is consenting and they feel liberated to, let's say, have extramarital affairs, right? Let's say the wife and the husband are completely on board. They say, yeah, we want a polyamorous relationship in which me and my wife can have extramarital relationships. Is that person free? They're not bound by the constraints of marriage. Are they more free than the person who looks at their wife and says, I may want to cheat on you. I may have desires to follow my flesh and to lust and to crave other relationships, but I'm going to subordinate those desires and I'm going to love you, cherish you, and be exclusive to you only, right? Who's more free? And some people in our culture would say, well, the person who's giving in to their base desires, they're more free because there's consent there. Right? They're, they're both wanting to do it, they're both giving into it, and therefore they're more free. Paul would say, no, they're not. Right? Because whether you understand it or not, we were, as uh, creatures designed by God, 
We were designed to be at our maximum state of happiness, joy, and pleasure when we are conforming ourselves to his law and his commands. And so if I'm not doing those things, even if I'm consenting to not doing those things, I'm becoming less happy and therefore I'm becoming less free, right? To give in to my baser flesh and my baser appetites, it's shrinking my will and making me less able to do the things that I need to do, Mm. right? I'm becoming more selfish, I'm becoming more conceited, and therefore I'm becoming less likely to be able to engage with God or to love others. So the real centerpiece, if you want to put it this way, because it could all be summed up in love, that's what Jesus contends, the real centerpiece of all this is we are free to love, right? And love has to be a free will action, right? This is why, again, God gave us freedom in the beginning. This is why love is concerned with free will throughout the course of your relationship, right? By me giving up what I want for the betterment of another, that is the basis for why they would receive it as a loving action. So again, with my wife, uh, for men out there, I need to explain this to a lot of guys in my counseling ministry. I have to explain to them, because they're like, I'm not a mind reader. Why doesn't my wife just tell me what she wants? Well, okay, there, there is a level in which women need to be better communicators, for sure, right? Women tend to be more behavioral. Men tend to be more verbal. And so men struggle with that disconnect, right? Their wives are acting out disple- displeasure with what their husband is doing as opposed to just telling them what's wrong and why mm-hmm. it's wrong, right? So a lot of husbands get upset about that. And again, there's, there's middle ground here. There's ways that we could work towards that happy medium. But at an ultimate level, the reason why your wife is not explicitly asking you what to do is because that would take away love. If she just flat out said to me, I want you to do this. I want you to buy me flowers, right? And I bought her flowers. She would not receive that as an act of love. She would receive mm. that as an act of fear, right? Mm. She's basically laid it out as something I need to do. And so if I fail to do that, then she's going to be upset with me, right? So I'm not acting out of love anymore. I'm acting out of self-preservation. <clears throat> this is why, again, a lot of Christians get frustrated with why doesn't God just tell me what to do? I'm in this crisis mode in my life. I needed to understand what to do. I, what Do I take just this job? Do I marry this person? Do I do this? Do I do that? Why isn't God answering me? Well, God is distancing himself. He's not answering you because if he answered you, then it's no longer, you're no longer free to do what you want. You're actually limited in your decisions. So in other words, if I say, do I take this job or this job? And God says, take this job. Now to deny God to not take that job that God has selected is now a sin. But if God doesn't speak, it's no longer a sin to take one over the other, but it is something that I'm freely choosing to do because I believe it's what's best, right? So God will not do that. He will limit a lot of these decisions because he wants to preserve our freedom. Is that why in the same book, Paul references the idea that when the law came, I died. The idea that without the knowledge of the law, without the law, there is no knowledge of sin. Mm. And so sin does not really sin until there is the law. (laughs) Right. And actually in Galatians, he says the law was the tutor until we came to Christ. Now, what he means by that is, again, take a little kid. There's a time in your kid's life where the only way for them to learn and to do the right thing is for fear of the law. Right. So my little two-year-old right now and your little three-year-old right now, they will not understand an intellectual argument as to why they shouldn't lie or why they should speak in a respectful manner or why they shouldn't abuse their little siblings, right? They will never understand that at this age. They will only understand if you do this, this consequence will happen to you. Or if you do this correctly, you will get this reward, right? That's all they understand at this level. But you don't want them to stay there, right? You don't want them to be 15 and the only reason why they're doing the right thing is because they're afraid of a consequence. 
You want them to get to the level where they do the right thing because they want to do the right thing and they avoid the wrong thing because it's wrong. They're exercising their liberty in a correct facet when it comes to virtue and goodness and love, right? That's the whole point. But with Paul, he seems to be arguing the same thing, that God's people, given what God had brought them through, are now ready to receive a law of liberty, right? That the law has paved the way for man to be able to understand a covenant with God that's not predicated upon cause and effect. That's not predicated on if you do this, right, and you read the old covenant, that's what it is. If you fail to live up to this, Israel, you will receive cursing. If you do live up to this, you will receive blessing. In the new covenant, we don't have those conditional promises anymore. Why? Because we're under the law of grace now. We do things because we're supposed to do them, not to avoid some sort of an external consequence, right? If I fail to tithe, God's not going to cause my bank accounts to shrivel up like he would in the Old Testament. But also, to preserve that liberty means that I actually have a higher calling, not a lower one, because now I'm bound by love, right? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ compels me. So, and I, I usually word it this way to people, in the military, I had a very restricted existence, right? I was under the law, if you want to put it mm-hmm. that way. I had to do certain things. I had to conform. I had to wear a uniform. I had to keep my hair a very particular way. They even talked about the way I walked, the way I spoke. Everything was micromanaged at the smallest possible level of existence. However, they could not control my thoughts. They could not control my motivations. They could not control my ambitions, right? Those things were separated from them. In marriage, I am not bound by law. I'm bound by love. And I'll tell you, my wife does have a right over my thoughts and my ambitions. It's not enough for me to just do the right thing. I have to want to do it. Mm. It's not enough for me to just seek good for me. I have to seek good for us. I have to sacrifice my goals and ambitions for us, right? That level of sacrifice is why people don't want to do it because they don't want to limit their liberty. But what we're saying is actually the law of liberty puts on more obligations on you, but it makes you more free counterintuitive. That's that's why Paul says, you'll be a slave to righteousness. And he says, I speak in human terms. He's like, you're not going to understand this unless I lower my speech a little. It does seem a little counterintuitive on the surface. And, you know, I talk to so many people, they don't want to have kids. They don't want to get married because they don't want to limit their liberty. And what I have to explain to them is, no, no, no. Love makes you free, but it limits your external liberty. It Mm -hmm. actually grows your internal liberty to walk in love and to be in the image of God. Mm -hmm but it limits your external liberty to do what your appetites want to do. Hmm. Reminds me, when you frame it that way, it reminds me when I was on staff with Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ International, and we had, uh, during my training with the Communications Center, we had J.P. Moreland teach us for a whole week. It was great on just worldview topics. And he said that we, as believers, are sort of, giving up the fight before it begins by framing arguments in terms of rights. Right. Because he says it's not a right to, you should not be asking, is it a right to abort a child? Right. He says what you ought to be questioning is what what does a virtuous woman do when faced with an unwanted pregnancy? Right. So the idea was framing it in terms of virtue rather than what my right is to. Not not do I have a right to do it, but should I? Yeah, and I thought that was clever in that when we use the language of rights, we've already lost the war. Yeah. We may win that battle, but... <laughs> and, and weirdly, again, and uh, we'll get to questions after I make this point. Uh, weirdly, again, Paul's argument here is 
actually the law of liberty makes you more free, even though it makes you superficially less free. It makes you internally more liberated because now you can do what you're supposed to do. And the law of the flesh makes you less free. So to give into your appetites makes you less free. So even though the party that is arguing for bodily autonomy and things like that, think about how free they are, right? Are you really free in that organization to say what you want, to think what you want, to believe what you want? They're like the more liberated they become, the more restricted their worldview becomes and the more force they impel people to do things that they want them to do, right? So is someone, take J.K. Rowling for instance, right? Is she free to say what she believes about gender ideology? And the answer is no, right? Even though she's a liberal, she, she agrees with modern liberal, she's actually a radical liberal in a lot of areas. But in this one area, she's not, and she's completely excommunicated just because it's one decision. Hmm. So are you really free in that worldview? And the answer is no, right? The more you think you're free, the less free you've become. And this is what Jesus means. If you lose your life for my sake, you're going to gain it. You hold on to your life for your own sake, you're going to lose it, right? Hmm. So you think you're becoming more free, you're not, right? And that's the whole point. But anyway, let's, wow, thank you. Interesting. let's get out to the questions. Yeah, well, Fred wants to know... Uh, <clears throat> What happened to the other guys that were crucified with Jesus? You know, the thief on the cross, even Barabbas. Hmm. He said he asked, did they uh, get beaten up as well, uh, not just as badly as Jesus, or did they just not have a scratch on them? I mean, obviously, the others on the cross were crucified. Right. But uh, he said he watched a movie with only Jesus whipped and beaten, and the other thieves were okay. Yeah. Uh, were they just nailed to the cross like him? So is there any... Uh, grounding for history there. Yeah, so Josephus, a uh, Jewish historian around the time that Jesus was crucified, I, th I think he wrote his Antiquities, which is like his historical narrative, a couple years, a couple decades after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Um, but in his book, he actually does describe the process of crucifixion, and we know that what the Gospel writers describe, including his scourging, was common practice. It uh, doesn't mean that they did it to everybody who was crucified, but it means it was common. It was, it was something that happened uh, very often. So it's very likely that the fellow thieves that were on the cross with Jesus were uh, put through the same type of process. Now, the gospel writers do seem to hint at an extra layer of malice that was layered upon Jesus as opposed to the other uh, people. Why? Well, Romans at the time, especially Roman soldiers, um, and as a former soldier, I'll tell you this is very true. Once you're occupying an area, an area that breeds terroristic insurrection, it's very difficult to like the people <laughs> that you are that you are stationed around. And the Roman soldiers had to deal with this. You have to remember there was a terrorist group around during the time that Jesus was crucified, right? Uh, Simon the Zealot, one of Jesus's followers, was a part of this class. It was a terrorist class that was seeking to kill Roman soldiers and to overthrow Rome eventually. So they were in, they were fighting an insurgent warfare as they were trying to hold the occupied area of Israel. So they definitely did not like, uh, a lot of the soldiers were very much uh, not interested in Judaism. They didn't like the Israelites uh, in any type of fashion. And so if some guy's walking around claiming that he's the king of the Jews, what do you think they would believe about this person, right? So here we have a guy, not only is it a guy that we don't like, but now he's representing the Jewish people as a whole. He's claiming to be the king of the Jews. And remember, the Roman authorities were coerced into killing Jesus. They didn't want to. He hadn't violated any of their laws. So for these reasons, you do get the idea, and you see it in the gospel accounts of how they put 
the robe of purple upon him. They shoved a crown of thorns on his head. You get the idea that they brutalized Jesus more for those reasons. But the nuts and bolts of what they did to the prisoners was relatively the same. Scourging, beatings, things like that. So they would have been, you know, the 39 lashes, those standard things for criminals right. that go along with crucifixion, right. as if that weren't, you know, punishment enough. <laughs> yeah, and, and even the scourging process of Jesus, we get the idea that he was scourged more, probably, hmm. because, remember, Pilate did it to appease the crowd. Right. So usually scourging is just, it's, it was usually a way to get uh, confessions from prisoners. But they, they weren't trying to get a confession from Jesus because he wasn't, he wasn't really guilty of anything. Pilate didn't believe he was guilty of anything. So mm. in order to utilize scourging in that case, he was brutalizing Jesus because he thought, if I brutalize this guy enough, maybe they'll stop asking for his crucifixion. So again, there's insinuations there that Jesus may have been scourged more mm. than the, the fellow uh, mm. people he was crucified with. And in fact, in the book of Isaiah, it says that he was brutalized beyond the point of looking like a human being, right? Uh, again, many of these criminals, same thing, but we get the idea that possibly and probably Jesus was brutalized more hmm. than other prisoners. Wow. Mac wants to know, do Christians still struggle with the same issues and sins that non-believers do, right? Uh, someone told me they don't want to live by a set of rules only to break them anyway. Yeah, no, great, great question. So, uh, this is an interesting argument. It's kind of like, well, if I'm going to be tempted to do the same things, whether I'm a Christian or not, uh, and I might fall to the same things, wouldn't it be better if I just kind of did what I wanted as opposed to like putting kind of what we were talking about with liberty? Wouldn't it be better if I just did what I wanted, if I'm going to do it anyway, as opposed to trying to resist and then having the double uh, jeopardy, I guess if you want to put it that way, of not only trying to resist but failing on top of it? Uh, and, and by the way, I thought this way for a long time because after I came to Christ, I believed that my struggle with pornography and sexual lust would dry up. It would go away because I'd be a new creation. And I was really dis disappointed, disenchanted when I came to Christ and realized, oh, I have the same struggles and oh, I still make mistakes and fail to this ideal often. Uh, and that drove me crazy and eventually I, I tried to actually leave my Christian faith as a result of that struggle. Uh, but it always reminds me of the story of Cain and Abel, right? So in Cain, the story of Cain and Abel, what do you have? You have Abel who's living up to the ideal that God has given him, and Cain that's failing to live up to the ideal. And what does Cain do? He kills the ideal, right? He murders the person who's doing the right thing. And that's, I think, inherent in mankind. If we fail to live up to the ideal, it's easier for us to kill the ideal than it is for us to try to live up to it. That's what modern-day people have done, right? We've gotten rid of the language of sin and failure, and we've been consumed with self-esteem, and don't make people feel ashamed, and let's uh, demystify and decriminalize all these different things because we don't want people to feel bad about themselves. Let's kill the ideal to make people feel better about themselves. But what the Bible essentially gets at is it says, yes, failing to live up to the ideal is sin. That's literally the definition of sin, by the way. Right? <laughs> that's, that's what the Greek word means. It means to miss the mark. Right? So if I'm failing to live up to the ideal, I have sinned. Mm -hmm. I have failed to live up to God's standard. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as Paul uh, words it in Romans chapter 3. Right? If, if that's what's going on, why not get rid of the ideal and just feel good about yourself? Well, the reason why is because the ideal is still the, what's best for us. Right? So if I... Let's take a simple example. 
if I find in my child that it's hard for her to control her emotions, uh, I could do one of two things. I could say, well, you know, just let her give into her emotions. When she's having a temper tantrum, just feed it, right? Give her whatever she wants, right? If, she, if I'm in the store and she wants a doll and she's screaming about it, I should just buy her the doll. I should just give into her emotions because, you know, it's better that she's appeased and happy than she doesn't get what she wants and now is held to a standard of good behavior even when you don't get what you want. And it's like, okay, I could take that away from her, but I can't take away the eventual consequences of what that kind of behavior will eventually do to her, right? What do you think of spoiled people that don't know how to not get their way and are going to throw a fit whenever they don't get their way in a relationship? Mm. They're going to be alienated. They're not going to have relationships. People don't want to play with them. They don't want to be around them because they realize every time this person doesn't get their way, they throw a fit and they just you know, have tons of emotional manipulation and just emotional abuse towards people that don't let them get their way until they get their way, right? They're going to alienate everyone. They're going to be very alone, right? So even if I take away the ideal in the abstract sense, the consequences of that ideal are still present, right? There's still a world out there and it's still going to get you. And this also is predicated on the idea that I can't find any amount of growth in my life. So yeah, as you fight sin, you're going to find a lot of failure, but that doesn't mean you're not going to grow. And that growth is going to be a lot slower than you might want it. That's why the common metaphor in the Bible is botanical growth, right? Uh, this is Galatians chapter 6, where Paul says, Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. Right? That's, it's hard. You know, anyone who does any amount of botany knows, man, it's, it's tough to feed into plants, right? Because you're, you're planting the seed and you're watering it and you're putting good fertilizer around it and you're trying to get the conditions just right. And, you know, you're going to be working for a long time before you get the slightest sprout. And then after you get the sprout, it's going to be years before you get fruit, right? You, you have to work and work and work at that thing to get anything out of it. And that's what Paul's saying. He's like, that's how it works against the flesh. You're going to have to work for a long time before you start seeing the fruit of righteousness being born on your life. But that doesn't make it not worth it. And it doesn't mean that the ideal isn't a worthy pursuit, right? That we should give it up because it's hard. Uh, I think that's a hugely detrimental thing that we've done to young people today, to give out participation awards and tell them that there's no ideal that they should shoot for in order to coddle their self-esteem. I think that's annihilated their self-esteem, and I think it's really, really bad for them. As Christians, it's good to have the law. It's good to be condemned and convicted and know that you're guilty before the law, but you have to balance it out. I'm guilty before the law, but I'm still accepted by God, right? Mm. He still loves me. And if you miss that balance, if it's just acceptance, 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 God loves me and he, he just loves me and he has grace for me and it doesn't matter what I do, then you're going to live in licentiousness and you will regret that kind of behavior because it's going to ruin your life and it's going to horribly damage your relationship with God. But if it's all just law, 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 no acceptance, then you're going to annihilate your your worth, your self-worth, you're going to feel terrible all the time. You're going to be depressive and you might even be suicidal because you think you're just such a mess and such a failure that what's the point of living anymore, right? So why, you have to balance those two things. Is that why Jesus, <clears throat> one of the criticisms he had for the Pharisees was, well, they got the rules right, right, but their motives and their hearts are completely wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. So, and, and by the way, there's two forms that that could take. So either, and you see it, right? In Jesus' culture, what happened? A law, law, law culture, what happened? Terrible arrogance and narcissism on the side of the elite and absolute depression and despair on the sides of the people who weren't living up to the ideal, mm -hmm. right? So 
the, the people who are the elite, they change the ideal to fit their behavior. Uh, that's why he has to contradict them. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor but hate your enemy, right? They, they change the law. They change the law to fit what they could do. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not the ideal. The ideal is that we live as God lives. And he gives an example of this. God causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. So you should do good to the just and the unjust, right? You should love your enemy. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Jesus is saying that they've lowered the ideal to ingratiate their self-worth. And on the other side of the spectrum, there's people who just feel like, I could never do that, so why bother? And they've given up hope, and they've just in, embraced their sin. And that would be the uh, the tax collectors, the harlots, people like that. And Jesus is saying, hey, you know, no matter what system you create, there's always going to be people on those poles. Mm -hmm. But if you create a system, right, that's true, right? It's built around the blood of Christ, but this access to grace gives the person who's legitimately trying to do better enough grace to be able to deal with their failures, but enough law to be able to give them the motivation to actually deal with their failures, mm. right? So that balance has to be achieved. Otherwise, there's not going to be any growth. It seems that then righteousness does have utility, mm. and that when you're talking to a secularist, yes, they may not have the same struggles as Christians do, but you can create stumbling blocks for them in a sense by explaining yeah. the utility behind righteousness. Because right. uh, remember, was, it's, that's an ultimate good. Yeah, Jay Warner Wallace, we were having lunch um, up in Minneapolis, and he was challenging our ministry to say, what are you guys dealing with on you know, this continuing sexual revolution? You know, Same-sex marriage was a hot topic at that point, mm -hmm. and it was already legalized. He says, how are you handling that? Well, we're an apologetics ministry and do evangelism. We, you know, we don't deal, at least our leadership was like, we don't deal with that issue. And he goes, well, you need to. Mm -hmm. And he went on to sort of explain um, how you could argue without saying the Bible says. Right. You know, the non-believer doesn't accept the Bible as a source of authority. Right. But you can explain the utility on why same-sex marriage as an institution would be bad for society on a pragmatic level. Yeah. And he gave some ideas, and I thought it was really interesting. Um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, and that, that is a concept that we see in the medieval theologians came up with it. It's the idea of the transcendent good, right? So if God is good, then his law is a description of what would be best for mankind. It's not just arbitrary laws that are kind of good and kind of not. Remember, if righteousness is an ultimate good, that means it's a good unto itself. So even if it's not benefiting me, I should still do it because it's good. However, because it's an ultimate good, it also has utility, mm. right? So loving my wife, even if I wasn't getting a benefit out of it, it's still good because it's good unto itself. However, because it's the law of God and it is a transcendent good, by loving my wife, my life will be a lot better. <laughs> As the saying right? goes, happy wife, happy life. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So. As Christians, I, I think that a lot of Christians have lost this, and they don't believe that righteousness is an ultimate good. They only believe it's a good when it's coupled with mm -hmm. faith, and that's not true, right? The person who doesn't believe in God but is living in a Christian worldview is way better off than the person who doesn't believe in God and is in a pagan worldview. Uh, I, I actually just wrote a paper about this, an essay about this, about the transcendent good, and I pointed out two, I guess you'd call them poets. The first one is a poet. The second one is not a poet. Uh, the first one is Percy B. Shelley, who's a romantic poet. And the second one is Sam Smith. Mm -hmm. And I was talking about 
two of their works about love. And both of their philosophies of sex were identical, right? Percy B. Shelley was totally into just no monogamy is bad. Marriage is stupid. Just it's free love. It's oppressive. It's oppressive. <laughs> Do what you want with your body because it feels good. Sam Smith believes the exact same thing. But when you look at Percy B. Shelley write about love, he writes about it as if it is a transcendent good. He has this beautiful poem about how na in nature he sees things coalescing into one another, right? Streams entering into oceans, wind carrying around leaves. And he says, so I see goodness in you and I want to harmonize myself with you, right? And so he's speaking of it as if it's a beautiful thing and it's a good thing, even though he rejects it. But it's because he's in a world, he's in a worldview that is heavily Christian and therefore he can't get away mm -hmm. from the good that he's seeing even though his body is going against something and even though his philosophy is going against something. But you look at Sam Smith and his new song, Unholy, is the opposite. It's about a guy who's married, but he's getting his jollies off at, quote unquote, the body shop because that's what feels good for him. And, you know, vows be darned, you know, I'm going to do what I want because that's what matters is my bodily autonomy. Mm. So absolutely, if Jesus is good and the law is good, then therefore, whether you believe in its foundation or not, it's still useful. It's still good for you. And that's why we should fight for it. It reminds me of something that an old Josh McDowell illustration, he said, why does God make laws? Well, for two reasons, to provide and to protect. Mm. And he gives this analogy of a, like Olympic swimming con competition. He says, imagine if there were no rules. You have a few swimmers over there, over here, over there, and all of a sudden they just start jumping in and swimming all over the place. and <laughs> Uh, first of all, someone's going to get hurt yeah. and badly and maybe die. <laughs> and secondly, uh, it's not fair. Right. No one has opportunity. Right. And so God says, I'm going to make these lanes for life and because I want to provide for you the best opportunity to flourish. Mm -hmm. And also, I want to protect you. So you have these lanes, and inside these lanes, and of course, in the context of this illustration, he's talking about sex before marriage right. during the why wait uh days, you know, when he was doing a lot of those, why wait until mm. I'm married to um, have, you know, to have that kind of intimacy. So he says, but when you're in the lanes, you can do the front stroke, the back stroke, you can go underwater, you can above water. You have lots of liberty within the framework mm. of what God created, but you're also protected and provided for. What do you, mm. you like that analogy? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, we've got uh, three minutes to tackle another challenging one, um, <laughs> but it's more philosophical. Um, okay. Uh, what is, uh, Yari wants to know, what is the Orthodox Church? Are they the original church founded in 33 AD, Ethiopian Orthodox Church, uh, Orthodox Christianity, so on? Um, yeah, no, it's a very good question. I'm going to try to answer this one as concisely as I can because you're getting into 2,000 years of church history. <laughs> um, so, yeah, when the church was first founded, um, in, you know, you could call it 33 AD, you know, after the resurrection and ascension of Christ and, you know, the Jerusalem church. Uh, some Orthodox people say it's the Antiochian church because it was at Antioch that Christians were called Christians. But regardless, uh, you have the formation of the church and they're still developing their structure. Uh, because when it's very small and it's in one place, you don't need a superstructure, you only need a substructure. But as the church starts to grow, and there starts to become more and more churches around the world, orthodoxy starts becoming more amorphous, right? What Christians believe in one area might be a little bit different what, than what they believe in another area. So they start setting up superstructures, uh, these bishops and these councils that start happening, ec ecumenical councils that meet and talk about 
what is Orthodox Christianity? And then that starts to develop, and eventually it leads to the first schism, which is about, I'm not going to get into it, but it's the filioque clause. Uh, it's about the Holy Spirit, and is he sent from God, or is he part of God? It, it's really weird. But uh, essentially it was about the authority of the Pope, right? The bit, do we need a mm-hmm. emperor, if, if you want to put it that way, that's going to organize our orthodoxy? The Eastern Orthodox said no, the Western said yes, and there was a split. And then from that split came the Protestant Reformation and that split. So Eastern Orthodox will say, well, we're the original church because the Pope is an innovation, and so therefore we're the ones that haven't gone away. But they have their own traditions that were built up over centuries as well. Every denomination you're a part of, no matter what, has its own human traditions that have made their way in. You can't get away from it because that's how church history works, and that's how human beings function. What you can do is suggest, like, what's the best traditions that we can embrace that allows us to serve God in the totality of his scripture, and how do I embrace that to the total totality of my being? I believe it's Protestantism, but you know what? There are brothers and sisters in Christ that are in the Orthodox Church for sure. They just have a different belief system about what the authority structure of the church should look like. Awesome. Thank you so much, Peter. And thank you for tuning in. We'll be here again tomorrow, same place, same time. Thank you for your questions. If we missed your question, please tune in tomorrow. We'll try to get to it then. God bless you and have a wonderful evening. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.